For those of you who do know me, I'll just remind you of something you already know, but I grew up in church. Uh, I don't know how many of you all would say, hey, I grew up in church. Let me just see who I'm talking to. You say, I grew up in church, yeah. And when I say I grew up in church, I mean, that is physically, literally the truth. I grew up in church. I started attending church before I was born and I've basically been attending church ever since. Uh, And I figured it up the other day, I'm 42 and uh, it comes up to approximately, and if my math is bad, I'm sure one of you will point it out. But if my math is correct, it's gonna be somewhere close to 2,200 Sundays that I have encountered since I was born. And I would bet you, I would bet you that I've been in church 2,000 of those Sundays. And I'm not even sure if you're supposed to bet about being in church, but it's a spiritual bet, so you're allowed to do that. So, you know, I bet you I've been in church over 2,000 of those 2,200 Sundays. And, And I'm not telling you that to say, oh my gosh, how good of a person he must be, because those of you who know would be like, Mm, that's not what he's saying. And uh, because that wouldn't be true. So I'm not telling you, oh, look how much I've been in church because I'm such a good person. Uh, I'm telling you that to establish the fact that if I know anything at all in the world, I know church and I know church people. I am basically pretty much an uncertified expert when it comes to church and church people. I am an unprofessional professional when it comes to understanding how churches work and how church people uh, work. And I've grown up in all kinds of churches. I grew up in a small country church. Uh, That was the church I grew up in. And we sang out of the Redback Hymnal. How many even knows what a Redback Hymnal is? Okay, okay. you are my people. And, And we would sing those songs, you know, with that Appalachian nasal twang, you know, farther along you know, that kind of thing, you know, cheer up my brother, but we'll make the song sound as sad as humanly possible while trying to cheer up people. And so we would sing that and, you know, all those great songs. And then the preaching was hiccup preaching, you know, you know, uh, there's other terms where they always sound bad, but I, I love the church that I grew up in. And in the church I grew up in, the preachers weren't allowed to use notes because if you use notes, you apparently hadn't heard from God. So the sermons were always without notes and usually without a point. And, and, and so the, the pastor would just read a scripture and kind of get off and go, preaching and that would be that would be the end of things and then I've been in spirit churches you know what I would call a church that would basically uh, you know get up sing for 90 minutes and preach for nine and you know they would do the 711 songs you've heard of those you know seven words sing it 11 times and and so you didn't need screens because only you need to memorize our seven words and so you would just sing forever and the preacher would get up and put a little kiss on it and then you'd go home so I've been in that church and that was that was a lot of fun I've been in high church you know the singing was operatic. I mean, they could take, you know, Chris Tomlin, how great is our God and make it ready for Carnegie Hall. And, and, and it was unbelievable. And the preaching was robed and reserved and, and it was just really well done. And it was a church where if anybody said amen, security was alerted. And uh, if anybody raised a hand at any point during the service, it was assumed you had a question. And, uh, you know, what can I do for you over there? And then I've been in large churches, thousands of people in church, you know, where the choir and the orchestra was robed. I mean, if you've got a robed orchestra, you are, you are doing something. And the preaching was refined and polished. It was always on point. And I've seen everything in between. 
And, and after seeing everything that I've seen in church, after all the expressions, after all the traditions, after all you know the preferences and individual tastes of what people like and dislike about church, I absolutely still believe that the local church is the hope of the world. And I believe that the local church is the hope of the world despite me. And I believe that the local church is the hope of the world despite you. And I believe that the church is the hope of the world despite all of us. Because Jesus said, I will build my church. And not even the gates of death will prevail against it. So there's lots of different churches, lots of different expressions. But in my exposure and in my experience, I have noticed that among church people and churches, there's one thing that we all, because I'm part of us, that there, there's one thing in particular we all seemingly struggle with. And I see it in all segments of Christendom. I see it among the high church. I see it among, you know, churches like ours where, you know, when guests come, you know, there's so much fog in there. They're wondering, have we actually killed a fatted calf back there behind the wall? You know, what is going on with that? You know, and so in all the churches I've been in and all the churches that you've been in, and after all the exposure and after all the experience, I've noticed that there's one particular thing that us Christians and churches that we struggle with over and over again. And it doesn't really matter what type of church it is. And here's the thing, is we struggle with balance. It's so easy for us to tilt one way or the other. It's really easy for us to run one way or the other. It's real easy for us to set up a tent at one end of the spectrum or the other. But what's difficult, What's challenging, what's uncomfortable, what takes a lot of effort and restraint and discipline is to be balanced somewhere in the healthy middle. To not run over here and be this extreme and not to run over here and be this extreme. And, and to give you a few examples of what I'm talking about. I've for all of my life watched us church people struggle with the balance of truth and grace. Uh, it's real easy for some of us just to go and pick up the hammer of truth and just start using it as a weapon against people. And then it's real easy for some to run towards grace and just give everybody a license to do whatever they wanna do. And it's just not all truth and it's just not all grace, but it's a balance of truth and grace because you need truth to uh, bring illumination to the situation, but you also need grace that makes restoration possible with any situation. So it, it's real easy for us to run and hang out with truth and, and only worry ourselves with truth. And it's real easy to get over here and just worry about how to be gracious, but to be right there in the middle, to hold on to grace and truth, that's difficult. And we, we struggle with that. I, I've noticed how, you know, churches and Christians, we struggle with, you know, the balance between the spiritual and the practical. You know, some people, you know, let's talk about angels, let's talk about demons, let's talk about heaven, let's talk about hell, let's talk about all the mystical things, let's talk about the spirit world, the spirit realm, and let's just talk about that. And then some people are over here and they say, well, that kind of freaks me out. And, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't even like to think about those things. So let's talk about how to be a better mom, how to be a better dad, you know, how to be a better employee, you know, how to be a better boss. And let's just keep it really practical, you know, stuff that's going to help us on Monday through Friday type of thing. And to be balanced, between the two because both are needed. To be balanced between the two is really difficult. Uh, some folks struggle with balance between the fruits of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. Some Christians only want to talk about the gifts of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit, and all of those things. And then some people only want to talk about the fruits of the Spirit. But, it, but it's a balance of the two. Uh, we struggle with balance between insiders and outsiders. You know, who gets the attention? Who gets the preference? And, and, and who's the strategy built around? Is it, is it the attenders? Is it the insiders? Or is it the people who've not come yet? And, and it's not one or the other, it's, it's a balance. And that balance is, is really difficult. It's the balance that some of us struggle with between legalism, there's a rule for everything. So in, in order to keep anybody from ever messing up, we're gonna make a rule about anything that we can think of. 
to try to keep people from messing up. And then liberalism over here on this side says, we're not gonna make a rule about anything because messing up, it doesn't even matter. And to have a balance being sensible in between, those things, those things are tough. Many of us grew up in churches that struggled with the balance between what was traditional and, and the idea of innovation. Uh, we struggled with knowing how much of the past should we bring with us into the future and how much of the past should we leave in the past so that we can innovate and do things better and more creatively and move together in the future. So we struggle with balance. But, but the one thing that I wanna talk about today is an area that I've noticed that within Christian circles, that we often get out of balance. Uh, I'm gonna talk about something today that I realized a few weeks ago that I had never talked about in 15 years in the way of one complete sermon about it. I'd talked about it many times in many other ways, but I'd never devoted a full sermon to it. And I said, you know what? Shame on me. And, and I want to share what I think we get out of balance with sometimes, maybe even around here and maybe in the church that you grew up in. And sometimes we get out of balance when it comes to this idea of baptism. Uh, water baptism. Uh, when it comes to water baptism, you're thinking, oh gosh, this is gonna be a real pick me up today. Uh, tr trust me, if you'll stick with me to the end, you're gonna be glad you did because this is gonna be something that's gonna help us. And it's gonna be something that's gonna encourage you. But when we think about baptism, you know, it's just baptism, you know, once you get baptized, it's kind of like, I've got it, done, sign me up, I I've got it, and you know, done. Uh, don't really think about it that much. But, but when it comes to Christians, sometimes we, we have Christians that overplay the importance of baptism. And they overplay the importance of baptism because they say, oh, if you're gonna be saved, you gotta be baptized. If you're gonna go to heaven when you die, if you're gonna have your sins forgiven, then you gotta be baptized. And if you're not baptized, then you can't go to heaven when you die and you can't be saved and you can't follow Jesus. Because in some way, when you step into the water, that water has the properties or the qualities or the power to wash away your sin that the water washes in some way away your shame and your guilt and your condemnation. And, and when you go down and you come up, that something, something has happened just because of the water. It in some way affects your eternal destiny. And so people say, okay, this is really important because in order to be saved, you gotta be baptized. But on the other side, there are people who underplay the importance of baptism. And they say, you know what? You don't have to be saved. You know, you don't have to be baptized in order to be saved. Uh, your sins are forgiven by God, not through baptism. And so you can go to heaven when you die and you can follow Jesus and you can be saved and you can be a Christian and you can be converted and you don't have to be baptized in order for any of those things to be true. And so sometimes they overcompensate by making it sound like water baptism is not that important at all. And really the truth is in the balance. Is baptism the most important thing? No. Is baptism not important at all? No. Is it somewhere in the middle? Is it important? Is it important for you? Is it important for me? Is it important for us? Is it important for the church? Yes. And so I wanna talk about it. And, and I just wanna start with some 101 stuff because I think maybe, maybe we need it. And here's the question to get us going. Is water baptism necessary in order to be saved? And maybe you're hanging out here at the creek, you're not sure you know, exactly all we think and all we believe, and, and maybe you grew up in a different segment of Christianity, but, but I'm gonna tell you where, where we are as a church, I'm gonna tell you where I am and, and how I read the New Testament. 
But is it necessary? Can a person go to heaven when they die without being baptized? Can a person be forgiven by God without being baptized? And I could give you my quick answer and, and I will, but I think it's better coming from the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul wrote one of the most fascinating chapters that details in great description how people are saved, how people go to heaven when they die, how people are forgiven by God, how people come into a right relationship with God. And here's what he said in Ephesians 2. This is amazing. He says, as for you, this is already personal. He just talked to you. As for you, you were dead. Everybody say dead. What, do you, what can you do when you're dead? And that's his point, nothing. You can do nothing when you're dead. You don't think when you're dead. You can't respond when you're dead. You have no reflexes when you're dead. If somebody tickles your foot when you're dead, nothing. Somebody gives you a reflex test, nothing. They put a little electrode up to you to test your nerves, nothing. You're dead, you're dead. And he says, you were dead in trespasses and sin. You, you were dead in those transgressions and sin. You were dead spiritually. There was something inside of you that was just dead. And then he says, and he moves on to the good news. He says, but, but because of his great love for us, but because of God's great love for you, who is rich in mercy, rich in mercy. That is to say that ever how much mercy you're ever gonna need in your life, for every screw up, for every mess up, for inadvertent mistake, every purposeful mistake, that God has already got enough mercy to cover your need. You'll never exhaust God's supply of mercy. Matter of fact, it is a renewable resource. It is new every single morning, Lamentations chapter three. He says, but God who is rich in mercy, he made us alive, he made us alive. Because how can a dead person make themselves alive? And so he gives us this imagery, which really is gonna bring us to a point of gratitude. He says, it was God that made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead, when we couldn't do anything for ourselves, when we couldn't get ourselves forgiven, when we couldn't get ourselves to heaven, when we couldn't get ourselves into a right standing with God, God did something for us because of his great love, because of his rich mercy. He made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. And then he says, okay, let me make this clear. It is by grace. It is by grace. Everybody say grace. It is by grace you've been saved, not communion, grace. You were saved not by church membership, but grace. You were saved by grace, not by walking at all, not by signing a card, not by living a good life, not by being moral, not, not by being a fine upstanding man or a woman. No, you were saved by grace. It is God who did it for you. It is God who did this for you. And he says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. There it is, our belief, our trust in God. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. So God gives us a gift and what we decide to do with this gift is entirely the determining thing in this idea of whether we follow Jesus, whether we're forgiven, whether we have hope of life after death. He says, it is the gift of God. And then this is the big thing, not by works so that no one can boast. If someone came up to you, and this is Paul's point, if someone came up to you and said, tell me how you were saved. Tell me how you became a follower of Jesus. Tell me how you were forgiven. And, and if you start with, I did, you flunk the test. His point is you did nothing. God did everything. You were incapable of doing anything and God did everything. 
And Paul's point is, you and I should be so grateful because of grace, because of what we could not do for ourselves, God stepped in and did it for us. Not because we deserved it and not because we earned it. Not because we could pay our way and not because we could garner good favor with God, but just simply because of his rich love and his rich mercy, he decided to do for a bunch of dead people what dead people couldn't do for themselves. He made them alive. He says it's by grace through faith. And this is just not Paul. This is the whole New Testament. This is Acts, you know, 1631, believe, you know, faith, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's Romans 10, 9, confess with your mouth that, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. It's John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's Jesus saying in John chapter five, any person who hears my words and receives them and believes upon the one who sent me shall have eternal life. It's John chapter one, verse 12, where John says, to as many who received him, who believed upon his name, to them he gave the power to become the sons and the daughters of God. He says, this is how it happens. It is faith. It's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And Paul says, that's how a person gets forgiven. That's how a person has confidence that they're gonna go to heaven when they die. He says, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one could boast. And his point is, there's nothing you can brag about to say, this is what got me in. There's nothing that I can say to say, this is what got me forgiven. There's nothing that any of us can brag about to say, this is how I secured a place in heaven when I die. He says, no, it was God who did it for you. It was God who did it for us. We weren't able to do anything, but God did it for us. So faith, grace, all God, nothing to do with us, just simply his great love and his mercy towards us. Now, if you'll go on to the next screen, uh, we'll take this discussion just a little bit further. But when you have the New Testament and, and you talk about baptism and, and you think about, well, you know, baptism has zero to do with my salvation or, you know, it has a little bit to do with my salvation. Uh, does it have, you know, a medium amount to do with my salvation? We just have to keep on coming back to these verses that we talked about where the Bible keeps telling us, no, this is about believing. It's about trusting. It's about receiving. It's about having life in his name. It's about the grace of God. And if you want a good definition of the grace of God, this is what Paul is shooting at. This is what the New Testament is pointing to. That in the end, grace is about resurrection. That's what it is for you. That's what it is for me. What seems as though sin is killed can live again. That's the grace of God. That's the grace of God towards you. That's the grace of God we extend towards each other that the grace of God is about resurrection. What seems as though sin has killed, it can live again. And that's what the New Testament teaches about how we are saved. We couldn't come to him, he came to us. We owed a debt that we could not pay, but he paid a debt he did not owe. So the question is, if baptism isn't essential for salvation, then why is it important at all? And then what does it mean? What does it mean to be baptized? And does it matter how someone is baptized? Does it matter if you're sprinkled? Does it matter if you're dunked? Does, does it matter if you're sprayed? Does it matter when someone gets baptized? And that's where I wanna spend the rest of my few minutes. I, I want to help us understand why baptism is important, why your baptism is important. Now, if you're a student of the scripture, uh, you'll find that baptism is used some 74 times in the Bible. And so that automatically feels important. It, it feels like, oh, this is a big deal. 
But when we talk about baptism, the best place to start and the best place to end is with Jesus. And when you open up the gospels, you're gonna find that baptism was a part of the beginning of Jesus's life. And you're gonna find out that baptism was a part of the end of Jesus's life. And when we're opening up the gospels, before we're introduced to Jesus, more times than not, we are introduced to his cousin before we're introduced to Jesus's public ministry. And John, who was Jesus's cousin, we're found, we find that he's making a name for himself. And this is, this is how Mark records it. He said, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, out to John, confessing their sins and they were baptized. This is, this is a big deal. By him in the Jordan River. Now thousands of people are coming out to hear John preach. He's a bit eccentric the way he dresses, the way he eats. His message is clear. Get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. The kingdom of God is at hand. The Messiah is on his way. He's close at hand. So get ready, get ready, get ready. And so people were coming out listening to his message and he was baptizing them. Now the word baptized in the first century uh, was not a religious word. It was an everyday word that people would use. It meant to immerse, it meant to dip, uh, to dunk, to submerge. Uh, people in ancient literature uh, used the word baptized to say, oh, that ship sunk at sea, but they would say that ship has been baptized at sea. And so it was just a common word. Uh, it was used in literature to say, oh, take a cloth and baptize it into dye so that you can change the color of it. Uh, one ancient writer described a murder by baptism. Now we are baptizing next weekend here at the Creek, but trust me, we've not lost anyone yet. But when he's talking about murder by baptism, he's talking about drowning. You could go home today and actually use the word the way it was used in the first century. You get through eating lunch, get through eating dinner. You look at your kids and say, kids, it's time to go baptize those dishes in the sink and get them clean and put them away. And, and, and it would be an absolutely appropriate use of the word. It was not a religious term. This is the first time in history in all recorded history, that there is a record of someone baptizing someone. This had never happened before in any religion. In other religions, there were ceremonial baths that people took, play, you know, took part in themselves, but there was never a record until this moment in time of someone baptizing someone else with some kind of religious significance. So the question is, what in the world was happening out there? Why was John, this first person in history, taking people preaching to them, then taking them and baptizing them in the Jordan River. What was happening? What was the meaning of it? And the meaning of it was these people were listening to him preach. And after listening to him preach, many of them decided, I believe that. I believe that's true. I want to associate my life with that teaching. I wanna identify with the message that he's teaching. And so I'm gonna go forward and I'm gonna be baptized. And John would baptize people as an outward expression of the faith and the belief and the trust that they had in their heart and their mind and in their soul to say, I want to build my life around what this man is teaching. Now, John was a Jewish person, so he, he had some context for this because in the Jewish world, if, if you were a Gentile, which was a non-Jew, and you wanted to become Jewish, right? You know, many of us grew up in churches where you just join another church and, you know, transfer a letter. You non-Baptist folks, you never could figure out the letter thing. You were like, where did the letter come from? Is it a real letter? Is it a fake letter? Who's signing the letter? Do they actually mail the, is there a filing cabinet somewhere with all the master letters in the Baptist faith? Where, where is this? What happens if the church burns and the letters are burned with it? I mean, who, who then knows who's going to heaven or not? I mean, it was a whole big deal. And so you non-Baptist folk, you're like, I don't even have a clue what he's talking about. 
doesn't, most people don't usually week in and week out. But here's the thing. It's like, you know, we, we join churches, like I'm not gonna go here anymore, I'm gonna go over there. To be a Gentile and decide you're gonna be Jewish, that was no casual endeavor. You had to learn things, you had to be able to recite things, you had to take place in this big elaborate meal, you had to offer a sacrifice at the, the temple, and then they would set you down and they would say, okay, the part that we haven't told you yet, that you know, you've, you've, you've kind of, you know, you've recited some things, you've learned some things, you can quote some scripture, you've had that, that meal with us, but you know, guys you know, in the new members class, if you're, gonna, if you're gonna become one of us, you gotta have a surgery, you gotta be circumcised. And the men are thinking, what has my wife got me into? I'm, no, I don't think I'm going to join. I don't, I don't feel the Lord in it anymore. And, and so, and, and if they decided, oh yeah, I'm going to go all the way. I'm going to be circumcised. The, one of the last things they had to do was they had to go to the temple. And I've seen these baths at the temple in Jerusalem. They would step into the water and, and they would just kind of wash themselves as a way of saying, I'm washing away my Gentileness and I'm becoming Jewish. So that was kind of an idea, but this taking someone and baptizing, this was something different. What John was doing was something entirely different. He was baptizing people who said, I've repented, which is to mean change your mind. I've changed my mind about God. I've changed my mind about people. I've changed my mind about how to live my life. And I want to identify myself with this new way of life. And so John would baptize them. And then one day John is baptizing and he looks up and he sees his cousin Jesus. And many of you remember what he said in John chapter one, he looked up and he saw Jesus and he said, behold, behold the lamb of God that comes to take away the sins in the world. And John from the very beginning of Jesus's ministry told the whole world what Jesus came to do. He said, I want you to look at the one who came to take away your sin. And the implication is, don't look to another person beside of you to be a person who can take away your sin. Religious institutions cannot take away your sin. Trying harder cannot take away your sin. Being better, being good, being moral, it cannot take away your sin. I want you to look at the only person who can ever take away your sin. His name is Jesus. He is God's lamb. He's the final sacrifice for sin. He is the only one. You can't do it. No one else can do it. He's the only one who can take away your sin. Look at him. And this is what Mark said happened. It says, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, 60 miles. And he was baptized by John in the Jordan. 60 miles, Jesus traveled to be baptized. That feels like a big deal. He walked 60 miles. Some of you don't like to drive 60 miles for a great dinner. Your wife says, honey, take me out. And it's like, all right, what can I do in 12 minutes of where we live? You know, you, you don't wanna drive anywhere, don't wanna take any trips, but I mean, walking 60 miles to go be baptized, I mean, that, that feels important. And so John baptized him into the Jordan and Jesus came out. And it was an incredible thing. Now, there's a few details that you may not think is important, but I promise you it is important. John had been very careful about the place that he chose uh, concerning where he baptized people. And, and we get another perspective uh, in the gospel of John, in John chapter three, it says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John was also baptizing at Enon near Selim because there was plenty of water. Well, why would you need plenty of water? Because of the particular way that John was baptizing people. He needed enough water to baptize them in the way that he was baptizing them. And people were coming and being baptized. So Jesus was baptized and the spirit descends and the father gives him an endorsement from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm pleased, listen to him. And then after Jesus was baptized, 
his disciples start going and baptizing people. Jesus never baptized anybody and, and he chose not to. And it doesn't tell us why, but I think I know why because I know church people. Because if Jesus would have baptized somebody, sooner or later that somebody would have claimed rank. And so I'll tell you, being somebody who was baptized by Jesus himself, I think I know. Right, I mean, that's what, that's what somebody would, so Jesus decided not to baptize anybody. So his disciples went out and started baptizing. And this is the beginning of the history of baptism, the way we know it and the way that we try to practice it. And this was at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Now fast forward to the end of his life after he dies for sins, after he's buried and raised from the dead. Jesus is you know, seen by many witnesses, the disciples up to 500. He spends over you know, a month with them, hanging out with them. And then when Jesus is ready to ascend back into heaven, he has one last message to the church, one last message to his disciples. And this is what he says. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. In other words, I've conquered sin, sorrow, and death. I've got all authority. So you don't have the authority. If you're gonna follow me, I have the authority. It's not about your will, it's about my will. So I'm gonna call the shots, I'm gonna call the play. And if you're gonna follow me, you're gonna run the play that I call because all authority rests on me. So you're gonna take your cues from me. You're gonna follow my example. You're gonna follow my teachings. And so then Jesus calls the play and says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing. And there it is, his final words to the church, his final words to followers like us, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus says, okay, here, here's the purpose of the church. Here, here is the purpose of every follower of Jesus. I want you to go out and make disciples and I want you to baptize people who believe that Jesus is the Christ. I want you to go out and baptize the people who place their belief, who place their faith on Jesus. And in doing so, Jesus said, when you baptize them, they are gonna be associating their life with me. They are gonna be identifying their life with me. They're gonna say yes and amen to my teachings. And they are pledging to build their life around my teaching. He says, so go out and baptize those who believe because in doing so, they're associating with me. And this became the idea of a public confession of faith. Now I grew up again in lots of different churches and whenever something unfortunate would happen to somebody who didn't go to church, you know, in the family or a friend or somebody, you know, first question inevitably it would happen. Now what did you hear? John died. Oh, can I ask, did he ever make a public confession of faith? I don't know. But in the New Testament, a public confession of faith in our 20th century and 21st century mind was, did he ever walk an aisle? Did, did he ever sign a card? You know, because that was the idea. Somebody would respond down, then the preacher would grab the mic and say, hey, what decision did you make today? This is, this is John and he's come today to receive Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And we say, oh, there's the public confession of faith. Well, in the New Testament, that is not a public confession of faith. In the New Testament, baptism is the public confession of faith. That's when we declare to the world that we have decided to follow Jesus. So Jesus told his disciples this and they took it seriously. A few days later, was the Feast of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. Peter stands up, preaches, looks at a bunch of Jewish people and Roman people and says, okay, the man you crucified, God has made him Lord in Christ. You killed him, God raised him from the dead. So repent, change your mind about who Jesus is, change your mind about your sin, change your mind about the people around you and receive Christ and be baptized. And this is what the book of Acts says. It says, those who accepted his message, those who accepted the message were baptized. 
And about 3,000 were added to the number that day. How many accepted the message? 3,000. How many were baptized? 3,000, because they thought it was a big deal, this idea of baptism. The rest of the New Testament doesn't give one single solitary example of someone following Jesus and not being baptized. We just don't find it. And what you find in the rest of the New Testament is this right here. Belief comes before baptism. Belief comes before baptism. You believe and then you get baptized. There's no idea of being baptized early so in hopes that you will believe later. It is belief comes before baptism. You place your faith in Jesus. And when you do that, you're forgiven, you're justified, you're made alive. That's settled, done with, settled forever. You have a hope of heaven when you die. You have better life on this side of death. That's done. It's a done deal. And then to show the world the done deal, to show the world what God did for you, then there's baptism. Belief comes before baptism. There's example after example. I'll give you a quick two. A guy by the name of Philip, one of the early followers of Jesus' disciple, he was preaching to a group of people called the Samaritans in the book of Acts. And this is what it says. But when they believed, Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the gospel and the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. They believed, then they were baptized because belief comes before baptism. Another one, Ethiopian eunuch, he's one day he's reading you know, Isaiah 53. And in Isaiah 53, he, he's reading about the prophecy of the coming Messiah, that he's gonna be wounded, bruised and pierced for our transgressions and sin and, 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 and you know, all of this. And he's reading it and he's trying to figure out who in the world is this talking about? And Philip shows up and says, hey, do you know what you're reading? The guy says, I don't have a clue unless somebody tells me. And so Philip pulls up a chair and says, okay, let me tell you who this prophecy is about. His name is Jesus. And Jesus showed up into the world and Jesus died for sins in Jerusalem. He was buried, he was raised from the dead. I was an eyewitness of it. And then he told him the good news about the grace of God. You don't have to do anything. There's nothing you can do, nothing you have to do because God has done everything necessary for you to be right with God. And he tells him all of that. And this is what it says in Acts. It says, and as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And it says, and he gave orders to stop the chariot. And then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him because he believed. And then he says, I need to be baptized. And that's what we see throughout the New Testament. Are believers going into the water to publicly cry out, to publicly demonstrate, to publicly illustrate, I have placed my trust in Jesus. And this going down into the water and being dipped or dunked or immersed or whatever you wanna call it, it was the practice of the church for 13 centuries. If you go back and find any of the ancient cathedrals, you'll find that in the stained glass prior to the 13th century, when people are being baptized, they're always being baptized in the water. Things like christening, things like infant baptism didn't show up until after the 13th century. And there's a whole fascinating thing about why that even showed up in certain parts of Christendom and, and why it still exists in certain parts of Christianity today. But the practice of the church from the very beginning was to take people into the water and to baptize them, to submerge them, to dip, to dunk, because it was, it was, it was important. How they did it was connected to what it meant and how they did it and what it meant was connected to what it was communicating. Because baptism, baptism would be a picture of what we believe. 
That's why it's important. That's why your baptism is important. If you were baptized once upon a time, if you were baptized recently, if you're scheduled to get baptized next weekend, your baptism is a picture of what you believe, of what we believe. This is what Paul said. He said this in Romans 6, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. And he's talking about not only a water baptism, but a spiritual baptism. But he says, into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. And this is what he's saying. When a person goes into the water, they are becoming a picture of what we believe as Christians. It is a picture of going into the water. That is a picture of Jesus's death. Going underneath the water is a picture of Jesus's burial. And coming back from under the water is a picture of Jesus's resurrection. And that's why the how matters so much because of what it's communicating. It is a picture of what we believe. The water communicates death. Beneath the water communicates burial. Out of the water communicates resurrection. It is a picture of what we believe that is most important. That Jesus died, that Jesus was buried, and Jesus was raised from the dead. And then beyond that, it is a profession of what we believe. It's just not a picture of it. But when a person gets baptized, when you got baptized, when I got baptized at 16 at Meldrum Missionary Baptist Church, when I got baptized that Sunday morning, it was me without words saying to the world, I have tethered my hope. I have tethered my faith to the belief that Jesus died for my sins that Jesus was buried and that Jesus was raised from the dead. And I was declaring it to everybody that was there that day. And when you got baptized, your baptism is a big deal because you were proclaiming to the world, you were, de you were demonstrating to the world that you have tethered your heart to that cornerstone belief that Jesus died, was buried and was raised from the dead. Now. When you get baptized, or I got baptized, I was not making a statement about how I believe the world was created. That's not part of it. When I got baptized, I, I was not making some statement about, oh, this is what I think about this, and this is what I think about that, and this is my position on this, and no. Baptism is uniquely a profession of what we believe about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, let me tell you something else important. Baptism isn't a profession of perfection. When Christians get baptized, we are not saying to the world, we have it all together. When followers of Jesus get baptized, we're not saying that we have found victory over all of our struggles. We're not saying that we are free from sin. We're not saying that we're free from hypocrisy. We're not saying that we've got every question settled, every sin suppressed. We're not saying that we got every doubt settled. We're not up there saying to some people, I'm now better than you, or somehow I'm all of a sudden good at being good, that now I'm gonna keep all the things that I'm supposed to keep. I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk by all the commandments. No, that, that was not what baptism was. It was not a profession of perfection. It was not even a profession of getting better. It was a profession that I believe Jesus died for my sins. He was buried and was raised from the dead. Now. Baptism is also a step of obedience. Jesus modeled it, he was baptized, he commanded it, great commission, the New Testament teaches it. So once you believe we're to be baptized, it's a matter of obedience. And then this is the last one, this is, this is where we leave it. Baptism, yours, mine, your future baptism 
Baptism is our declaration of a new association. Interesting story, I told you about John baptizing and I guess I hadn't thought about it in a while, but John, he goes on about his ministry and Jesus goes on about his ministry, but, but, but John, many of his followers were transient. They would come into Judea and then they would leave and go back home to parts of, parts of Europe and parts of Asia Minor. And, and so that evidently had happened many, many times because years later, the apostle Paul in Acts chapter 18 and Acts chapter 19, he runs into a couple of guys who were baptized by John. This is years after Jesus showed up on the planet, years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And, and the apostle Paul runs into these two guys and they're preaching. And you know what they're preaching? They're preaching the message that they heard John preach. Get ready, get ready, get ready. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. The Messiah is on his way. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. And Paul's thinking to himself, who are you guys? And he walks up to him and he says, whose message are you preaching? And they were like, oh, John, we were baptized by John. And that was John's message. That's our message. And, and Paul says, well, I hate to tell you, but no, I don't really hate to tell you, but the one you're talking about, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. He came, he came, he came. And he died and he was buried and was raised from the dead. And they're like, what? He did? And yeah, he did. And they're like, well, what do we need to do now? And Paul says, you need to be baptized. We need to be baptized again? Yeah. Why? Because the first time you were associating with John, what he was saying, but now the gospel has come. The good news has come. Jesus has come. And you need to be baptized and to be associated with Jesus, to identify with Jesus because it is a declaration of a brand new association, a brand new allegiance. And that's what's happening every time believers are baptized. They're saying to the world, I'm no longer associated with darkness, but light. I'm no longer associated with condemnation, but forgiveness. I'm no longer associated with curses, but with blessings. I'm no longer associated with being lost because now I'm found. I'm no longer associating with being dead because I've been made alive. So let me talk to a few of you. You've never been baptized because you've never believed. You've never put your belief that Jesus died for your sin and was buried and was raised from the dead. You've never tethered your life to that. You've never placed your faith and received the grace of God, his gift to you. And what I wanna say to you, if that's you, you need to place your trust in Jesus today and then be baptized. Second group of people that I wanna talk to for just a moment is that you have trusted Jesus at some point. Maybe recently, maybe years ago, but for some reason you've never been baptized. Maybe you were embarrassed, maybe you were afraid of water, maybe some things happened in your life, maybe you got confused and you just thought, man, I, I'm not good enough to be baptized. I, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm holy enough or righteous enough and I, I'll never be like those people, but, but you believe, you've placed your faith in Jesus. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus and you've believed and you've never been baptized, I wanna tell you, you need to be baptized. You need to be baptized, it's important. If you're here and you were baptized earlier in life, maybe as a baby, maybe as a small child, but, but somewhere along the way, faith became real to you. Belief became real to you. 
and you believed what Jesus had done for you. But yet you have never taken that next step of being baptized, putting your baptism on the right side of your belief. So I can't do that because I'd be insulting my family's church and you know, the, the tradition of where I came from. No, you wouldn't be insulting that at all. You would simply be honoring the teaching of the New Testament. You wouldn't be disrespecting anybody. You wouldn't be dishonoring anyone. And for some of you, you know that as a child or as a baby, you, you went through that and you don't even remember it and it didn't really mean that much. And there was a point later on in life where it clicked and it's been real for you and you need to be baptized. And then for those who you say, I just, I don't know, I just don't wanna be. I don't think it's important. I don't think you have to be in order to go to heaven. I think there's other things more important. I would just say to you, why call him Lord if we're not willing to do the things that he's commanded us to do? It's important. Is it most important? Absolutely not. Is it least important? Absolutely not. Is it important? Absolutely. So in the words of the Ethiopian eunuch, what's keeping you from it? Afraid? Embarrassed? Something else? And I would say to you, be baptized. Be baptized. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. If you're here today, if you're watching online and you've never trusted Jesus to be Lord and Savior of your life, you've never placed your faith You've never tethered your heart, never tethered your hope of eternity to the fact that Jesus died for your sins and was buried and raised from the dead. I wanna give you an opportunity to do that just now. I wanna give you an opportunity just to pray in your own heart. You don't have to pray it out loud, but, but a prayer of belief that says, Heavenly Father, thank you for doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. Today, I receive your gift of grace. I believe that Jesus died for me, for my sin, all my sin. And he was raised from the dead to prove that I could be forgiven fully, freely, forever. And right now I ask you to come into my life, change me in Jesus' name. Our heads are still bowed and our eyes are closed. For those of you who you know you need to be baptized, you know you need to take that step. You believe. Maybe you just started believing. Maybe you just prayed just then. But you know that your next step is you need to be baptized. You've been thinking about it. It's something that comes across your mind. But you know you need to take that step. You say, Trevor, that, that's what I need to do. I need to be baptized. But I need you to pray that I have the confidence to take that step. Nobody's going to come to you. Nobody's going to embarrass you. But you just raise up and say, Trevor, that, that's what I need to do. I need to be baptized. There, there's a hand. Anybody else? Just, there's a hand, two hands, three hands back there. There's another. Anybody else? You just slip it up. Say, I know that's what I need to do. I, I, I believe there's another hand. Anybody else? You just slip it up. Say, I, I, need, I need to be baptized. That's what I need to do. Anybody else? You just slip it up just a moment longer. There's another. There's another. Next weekend, here at our church and at all of our campuses, we're, we're baptizing. And maybe you're online and maybe you know that's what you need to do and you need to be here next weekend. But I promise you, you will never regret taking that next step 
Father, I pray give courage for all those who need to take that step, to take that step. Don't let them delay it. Don't let them put it off. I pray that they'll make arrangements today to follow you in baptism next weekend. In Jesus' name, and everybody said,